Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. When the preview for music was released, the debut film directed by musical artist Sia, it received backlash from individuals on the autism spectrum. Today, where we live, we talk about this and how the mainstream portrays autism. We also learn more about neurodiversity. We'll hear from adults who are autistic, including journalist Sarah Luderman, who writes about disability policy and politics. That conversation coming up. First, as more schools resume in-person classes, how are they addressing the educational needs of students with disabilities? Many who haven't received the services they're fully entitled to in the last year. Joining me now on Zoom is Connecticut child advocate Sarah Egan. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Happy to be here. So when we think about this last year, there have been a lot of different uh, schedules uh, that schools have adhered to from remote to hybrid. More schools are opening fully. And so in this last year, how did these school districts approach meeting the needs of students with disabilities? Well, that's a perfect question, Lucy. And the answer is in a hundred different ways, right? And I think that that worked for some kids and really did not work for others. Um, as you say in your question, there are school districts that, although they were all closed from March to, to June, there are school districts that worked and scrambled to reopen as, as quickly as they could, sometimes uh, the fastest for their highest need students. And I think those students um, received the level of service that other children didn't receive. And we know that there are districts who remained closed um, or partially closed for the bulk of the pandemic. And I think those children and their families um, really struggled and had to find other ways to, to cope um, to, and to access essential services. Uh, back at last March, uh, everyone was scrambling and trying to figure out how to go fully remote. We've had several months now in a new school year that we're halfway through. And so what have school districts been doing? Has there been any improvements? And what have you been hearing from families? So I think on the, on, the, on the positive side, I think crisis breeds innovation, right, Lucy? So I think that we've seen districts, everybody's facing this unprecedented and durable crisis for the first time in, in our lifetime. And I think there are districts that worked with outside experts, harnessed their uh, internal innovation, um, and created new uh, opportunities for um, kids with disabilities. And I think there are districts that really struggled with that. Um, and, and so, you know, the Office of the Child Advocate, as you know, you know, we tend to hear from families um, who are at, sort of at the end of their role, right? So people don't call our office to tell us, you know, here's what's really going well in our district. You know, people call us when they can't get their needs met any other way. So our, and we continue to hear from families now, but just an example of some, some of what we've heard from families, um, both families who opted for remote instruction as what they felt was a safer alternative for their family 
and but couldn't get the services that they needed or couldn't get them in an accessible way. Um, and we heard from families who couldn't access transportation because their child might not be able to wear a mask um, consistently without help or support due to a disability. We heard from families who were denied access to in-person instruction or adequate in-person instruction because their child um, could not sustain um, disease mitigation strategies like social distancing or mask wearing. Often young children and children with more significant disabilities. You know, for example, we, our, our office worked with one family whose uh, child was told that he had to stay home and, and do remote instruction. Um, the child, what, for months? And the child was not only in kindergarten, but the child was also legally blind and had autism, right? So our office worked with that family to reconnect them with appropriate and safely delivered in-person services. I, I do think that a lot of districts have found a way forward with that and have worked to accommodate uh, children with disabilities. There are a lot of districts who reopened, even in the hybrid model that allowed children who had the most significant need to come back full time uh, and I think that many districts recognized the priority um, that those students, you know, are the, are the most likely to not be able to benefit from remote instruction. But I think we have a lot of work to do, Lucy, to fully understand the impact on our most vulnerable learners. And, and one of the things I'm most concerned about is how are we going to assess that? How are we going to assess that for our most, most vulnerable, which are children with disabilities who live in low-income communities? Um, or and, and children of color with disabilities. You know, everything tells us this is these are the kids who are most likely to be underserved. And data that the OCA requested from the State Department of Education on chronic absenteeism for children with disabilities by disability classification, Lucy, which we received a little, you know, about two months ago, told us that in this school year, you know, since you know some districts were even reopening a bit. <coughs> excuse me. Um, children with developmental disabilities were among the most likely students to be chronically absent from school with rates of absenteeism from one third to almost 50%. Um, so that's a really alarming statistic and tells us we have to dig much deeper. We're gonna need to see that absenteeism data for those children with disabilities broken down by race, ethnicity, language, and school district. And that work is still going on. We, People have tried their best in certain districts, but we owe these children and their families a lot into coming into the I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought up the absenteeism uh, data. I'm sure you've seen the story from Hearst, Connecticut, just looking at the New Haven Public School District, which just, I believe, recently opened after uh, being closed for some time uh, from a hybrid or, or fully remote at, at one point, where there are more than 6,000 New Haven students who are chronically absent. That's about more than 30 percent of all public school students in the city. So when we think about this emphasis on learning loss, what are you most concerned about when we're talking about students with disabilities, Sarah? Well, I think that data from New Haven is alarming, right? And I'd wanna take a much closer look at that and have, that's aggregate data for the whole district, right? So I'd really wanna drill down there and see, you know, what does the number look like for kids who are multiply disabled? What does that number look like for kids with intellectual disability? What does it look like for kids with autism? Is it 30% or is it 70%? I don't know, 
right? What we're, we're going to have to find out, what does it look like for the lowest income students in the district, right? I think when we talk about learning loss, I like to think about that in a really broad lens. And I do want to acknowledge that families, you know, we talk about crisis breeding innovation, you know, it does that for families too. You know, we hear from families in crisis, but even while they're in crisis, families are finding a way to survive. They're finding a way to cope. You know, in the context of the pandemic, they may be finding, you know, New Haven, uh, the community really stepped up in the absence of school being opened and created learning hubs and connections and other relationships for parents who needed extra support. Um, so I think it is important to, you know, give so much credit to families and communities who found a way forward, you know, even through all of this hardship. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, the, that, that, that data in New Haven is really scary uh, for, for those kids. And I think that we have to find a way to assess their, their global loss, right? We talk about learning loss. What are we talking about? What have kids lost during the pandemic? They've lost relationships. They've lost experiences. They lost play. They lost maybe a sense of security. Maybe they lost part of a sense of safety if they found that in the relationships and the time they spent in school. So what I don't want to have happen is that we focus exclusively on, well, now all poor children with disabilities have to go to summer school. Summer school and learning opportunities for children will be important, right? Um, but children need an opportunity to be kids. Right? They need to know that their families are supported. They need to know that there's a roof over their head. They need to know that there's lunch and dinner and breakfast all coming. They need an opportunity to play and be outside. And so we have to be thinking about how do we provide that opportunity for all children this spring and this summer, regardless of income and regardless of disability. It's going to be a big push to offer summer school for kids with disabilities. We want those embedded learning opportunities, but not at the expense of all the other losses and the needs that children have. Mm. A child with autism who, who needs to, to, to make up ground um, with their educational services, you know, needs to benefit from all the other things um, that children with, uh, without disabilities, we hope will benefit from this summer as well. So I think we, it's, I don't like to think just about learning loss, Lucy. I like to think about sort of opportunity loss and how do, and developmental loss and how do we make that up to our children with with increased um, opportunity this summer i'm glad that you pointed that out uh, when when i mentioned uh, learning loss because i'm not hearing that from uh, policymakers in our state that are focused on what you mentioned uh, looking at all of the ways that children have been impacted uh, beyond learning loss does that does that trouble you sarah well i it i think there are folks who are pushing that, right? Um, there's a really good bill in the education committee about sort of compensatory services for kids. And I think there are a number of folks who testified on that bill a few weeks ago talking about the holistic needs of our children, right? But I don't, I don't, want, I don't mean to be glib about it, but I don't want a, a situation where poor children get worksheets all summer and, you know, children who are more advantaged go to camp, right? And they swim and go to the Boys and Girls Club, et cetera, right? We want to make sure that all of our kids are getting those opportunities, regardless of where they live and regardless of income. And how do we use those federal stimulus dollars and hopefully supporting matching state dollars to um, give districts the opportunity to help provide that and work with their towns and work with their community-based agencies to provide a whole child approach to reintegration and support and um, an opportunity for our kids. 
you know, one population I just wanted to raise today, Lucy, that I don't know has gotten enough attention. And then I'll tell you something I'm really worried about are our littlest kids, right? Kids who at 12, 18 months, their parents may have said, geez, I'm not sure they're developing okay, right? I'm not sure I'm questioned, I'm scared, right? Normally those children might be evaluated by birth to three and receive a certain level of service if they qualify, sometimes very intensive services. Well, think about all that happening in the context of a global pandemic, right? Where most services across the board are delivered remotely, including for our littlest ones, our infants and our toddlers. And then think about how more than a year has gone by and those children and their families may now be transitioning to public school for the first time, also in the context of the pandemic and maybe not having received the intensive level of support and service and case management and education and hope and information that they might normally have received or the level that they would have received it um, without a global pandemic, right? And we have well-documented terrible inequities in this state and how we deliver early childhood education and special education. Again, depending on where a child lives and how high or low income their community is. So I wanna take a big red pen and draw a big circle around our two, three and four year olds and say to state policymakers, what are we gonna do to support these children and families in the most important developmental window of their life to make sure they get on the right trajectory going forward? You know, being a parent of a child with disabilities is a beginning of a whole new journey. And families rely on those early intervention and early education staff and opportunities to, to create a foundation for the family and for the child that will last for the, you know, throughout uh, their school experience. And I wanna make sure that these kids do not fall through the cracks as they enter public school. You're hearing Sarah Egan, who's Connecticut's child advocate, as we talk more about all of this attention on schools fully reopening, but how are the needs of children with disabilities and their families being met by these school districts? And when we think about uh, children who haven't uh, been uh, in school, are you worried about children uh, being not being diagnosed? Disabilities are being missed, Sarah. I think we have to assume that, Lucy, right? I mean, the global pandemic has been, as, as many folks have said, um, it, it has been a natural disaster for children. That's what it is, right? And as I said, you know, there, we see families' strengths and, and the things that they struggle with throughout this, you know, protracted crisis. So I give families so much credit. Um, I give the people that help them so much credit. But yes, I think we have to assume that, the, you know, that there's a, you know, a tremendous loss in the, in the ways that you're talking about, Lucy. Um, and particularly, again, for, for um, children of color, families of color, low-income families. There's a big report, national report, that came out uh, yesterday, I believe, from the Center for Civil Rights Remedies. And this is what they're talking about, the impact of the pandemic on students with disabilities, particularly um, children of color, um, the gross inequities for those students that have been exacerbated, and the remedies that we need, attention, accountability, more federal dollars, and targeted use of those dollars to support, you know, our highest need and most vulnerable and underserved children. So that's really, that's a focus of the Office of the Child Advocate going forward. Um, you know, even acknowledging, you know, the strengths and innovation that various school districts and community providers have brought to these families. You know, we have to honor our commitment to equity and opportunity uh, for all children. You brought up federal stimulus dollars. How much has been allocated 
to communities to help children with disabilities, Sarah? What do we know? Well, we know there's a lot of money coming into the state, you know, which creates um, enormous opportunity, but hundreds of millions of dollars in some of our districts. Now, it comes with a sort of spend it or lose it within X period of time. That's going to create tremendous challenge. The, the, feder- um, the, the federal government has, has issued priorities, you know, uh, uh, compensatory uh, recovery education, vulnerable populations. Um, so while IDEA, which is the federal law governing um, special education for kids with disabilities, has never and ever, ever been adequately funded, not even close by our federal government, there is an opportunity now to think about how to use the federal dollars to sub- strategically support um, kids with the most level of need, um, trauma, um, other mental health treatment needs, um, more profound um, disabilities. In part, I would strongly suggest through using federal dollars and hopefully some matching state dollars to support public-private partnerships um, in our school districts. School districts can't do everything on their own, right? There are community partners and helper agencies throughout communities that uh, want to help and strengthen those partnerships with the school systems to provide everything from case management, mental health support, special education expertise, pro-social opportunities, connections to to mental health care, et cetera. And then we could use the federal dollars to support those connections and then use the time, you know, the next year to create blueprints for districts about how to sustain those partnerships once the stimulus dollars ends, partly by using state and federal health care dollars. So I think there is an opportunity here to think about how we serve children in a more efficient and more innovative way. We know there's certainly a ton of need, Lucy. There's so much need out there. I think it's critical that the governor's cabinet um, keep um, or have a specific strategy for uh, identifying and supporting the most vulnerable people um, in our communities, including children with disabilities, um, and making sure that the governor's cabinet has strong relationships with community agencies and entities and advocacy organizations that serve and support um, vulnerable populations and that include people with lived experience. And I think that that kind of engagement um, from the governor's office with those organizations will only make uh, the state's approach to our recovery um, stronger. You're hearing Sarah Egan again, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Sarah, thank you for coming on. Well, we'd love to have you back. I know there's a lot of important issues related to children and their families that we haven't even discussed. So we'd love to have you back soon. Lucy, thanks so much for having me. I'll be excited to listen to the rest of the program. Take care. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, we shift gears and we talk to two adults who are autistic about how the mainstream portrays people on the spectrum. Are you part of the autistic community in Connecticut? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. What do you know about autism and individuals on the spectrum? 
If the answer is not much, then people who are autistic would probably not recommend a recent movie called Music. It's a film directed and co-written by Australian singer Sia. The movie has received a Golden Globe nomination, but it has also received backlash from the autistic community. Before we get into the controversy, we wanted to talk about autism with people who are autistic. Joining us now on Zoom, Sarah Luderman, a freelance journalist covering disability policy, politics, and culture. Sarah, Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Also with us is Charlie Hancock. She's a student at Oxford University and news editor of Oxford's independent student newspaper. She wrote an essay about Sia's film. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Charlie, I'll start with you. When were you first diagnosed? I was diagnosed when I was 14, after a period of extended distress, I'll call it. And although um, many people think of autism as being a condition which is noticed first in early childhood, I was actually diagnosed quite early by the standards of a lot of autistic women who may never get diagnosed or will uh, get a diagnosis during later adulthood. That's interesting. I know that happened with you, Sarah. You were diagnosed later? Um, yeah, I was diagnosed in my mid-twenties. Uh, when uh, I heard Charlie mention that she was diagnosed at 14, but that's uh, uncommon often for women who have autism, that oftentimes they're diagnosed in, in adulthood. And so what was happening around the time that you were diagnosed? Oh, um, well, I... Uh, I was having a little bit of difficulty transitioning to adulthood. Um, I did pretty well in school. Um, I had some social problems, but uh, like my academics were fine. I went to college. Uh, I went straight into grad school. And then when it time time to try to get uh, a job, <laughs> then, then things kind of took a nosedive. Um, I think my... Uh, coping skills sort of got outpaced um, by my disability. And that's actually pretty much how all autism diagnosis works. Uh, it's it's like a very fail-first uh, method of identification, which is kind of frustrating. Charlie, would you agree with that? Uh, tell me what was happening in your life. I know you wrote a, an article for Guardian and you talked about before your diagnosis in 2016, uh, what it was like when you interacted with people. I think Sarah's description of autism diagnoses as happening after failing first is extremely accurate. I, um, I could never instinctively understand social norms the same way that neurotypical people could but i'm i'm a good learner i was always a good student i could intellectually understand what was going on i taught myself what particular tones of voice or gestures would mean and for a long time that was okay but then as i started to become a teenager and all the people around me their interactions suddenly became a good deal more complex. They became a lot more nuanced. And I couldn't catch up with that. And also at this time, because I was spending so much effort trying to catch up with them, I was spending less energy dealing with sensory input. So I have hypersensitive hearing. I, I'm sometimes very sensitive to certain textures. So 
I found myself unable to do any work in lessons. I was struggling socially. I was being very badly bullied. And that I am um, academics were my life. They still are to quite a significant extent. So to find myself struggling at school and wondering what was going on with me, am I um, am I becoming depressed? Am I becoming anxious? Is there something uh, wrong with my brain that I don't that I didn't know about? That was very very distressing. And then I started to do some research, and uh, I came came across autism, and the diagnosis um, the diagnostic criteria seemed to fit me to a T. But when I'd go to pediatricians or school counsellors to say hey I think I'm autistic can I please get a diagnosis if this would really help me they often told me that I couldn't be autistic because I'm very verbal I'm very good at talking because um, I'm interested in other people I had a school counsellor tell me that if I was autistic I wouldn't want to have friends or be interested in the people around me but then when I finally saw an autism specialist I had about four or five sessions with them in order to get the diagnosis. After the first session, she told me that I fulfilled all the criteria and that I was going to get a diagnosis. And how did you feel after that diagnosis? That I had an explanation for why I'd always felt different, but also um, I felt affirmed in the knowledge that there wasn't anything wrong with me. I'm just different and that's okay. And that once I had that knowledge, I could start to find uh, coping mechanisms which could help me and that also find a wider community of autistic people with whom I could relate. Mm. Uh, Sarah, when we talk about autism, uh, people have very many interpretations of autism. And when we think about autism being a spectrum disorder, can you explain that for our listeners more? Well, autism is a pretty heterogeneous condition. Um, I think that a lot of people, when they hear the word autism, they think of uh, sort of like two things. They either think of someone who is just sort of smart and weird and quirky and doesn't really have any real problems. Um, maybe they have trouble getting along with people. Uh, and then the other is to think of someone who uh, is just completely non-functional and sort of an affliction on their family. And neither of those things is accurate. Um, so the thing about like the autism spectrum is that it's not like too holes. Um, it's more of like a, I think the metaphor some people use is like a, when you go to like a frozen yogurt shop and there's all the different toppings. So like you, you end up with like a lot of different uh, people who have a lot of different skills. Um, there's some, and, and a lot of different uh, support needs. There's actually like a some interesting research that seems to suggest that autism is not even close to being one thing. It's probably like hundred or more different conditions that we're all sort of lumping together because we don't understand them well enough and are sort of um, just looking at the, the way people behave and not like the actual underlying biological issues. 
Because people often don't understand autism, how has that played out uh, in your life? Sarah, earlier you said when you uh, tried to get work, that's when uh, you noticed that there were, there were difficulties and challenges. How have you faced discrimination because of your disability? Um, I think that a lot of people tend to... so. The thing about autism is that, like, it has a very gendered aspect. Um, Charlie talked about this a little bit, but um, there are some things that come along with autism, like uh, certain the tone of voice, um, facial expressions. I don't smile very much, uh, and in men, those things are often seen as sort of like, I guess, a little eccentric or or even like authoritative in the right context, uh, and. In women, it gets interpreted as being, mm, I don't want to say the B word on the radio. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah, So like. um, mm, mm, mm. Sour. Yeah. So uh, like I've had issues in jobs where I've been called into HR because people thought that I sounded condescending. Um, That's just. Oh, yes. Oh, that's, yes. <laughs> that's just how my voice sounds. Um, or people thought I was being unfriendly. Or uh, like there, there's like this emotional labor that women are supposed to do on top of everything else. And that like autism intersects with that in a really interesting way. Mm, or you're also often uh, seen as being quite aloof and a bit of a know-it-all maybe or difficult to approach. Yeah, and I have like I have male friends who like have the same I kind of I guess I call it like an autism accent. They have the same kind of like autism accent I have, but people think that they sound very authoritative. <laughs> and uh yeah, I don't I don't get read the same way. You're hearing Sarah Luderman here on Where We Live. She's a freelance journalist covering disability policy, politics, and culture. Also with us from England, Charlie Hancock, a student at Oxford and news editor of the university's independent student newspaper. They're both adults who are autistic, and we're talking with them, learning about a little bit about their life and in the context of how mainstream talks about autism. And part of that, Charlie, is this latest uh, movie that's come out called Music by a singer songwriter Sia she directed and co-wrote this movie and it's received a lot of backlash from people in the autistic community you wrote an essay about the film so when you first heard about the movie what did you think my first my first thoughts and feelings were a mixture of trepidation and a little bit of excitement because I love musicals and I think that a lot of the production um, a lot of the parts of production that are inherent in music are inherent in musicals would be a great way to actually describe what it is like to be autistic. I'm a, I'm a musician myself, and that I still hope to, and I hope that one day we'll be able to see a good musical about it. But then, when I saw the trailer, I immediately recognised the signifiers of um, what is called inspiration porn within it, which is a dehumanising portrayal of disadvantaged people. So this can be people who are, who are uh, disadvantaged due to their ethnicity or to their disability, um, where they don't exist as people, but they exist to inspire the white, neurotypical 
um, usually heterosexual characters in the film and by extension the audience instead of actually um, uh, te uh, teaching people what this minority group experiences and helping them to empathize with them and then there were all sorts of other things that gave me pause for thought such as uh, the, ce the central portrayal of an autistic character looked um, looked disrespectful. I don't blame Maddie Ziegler for any of this, but I think the performance that Sia directed from her looks like um, how a lot of autistic people are made fun of by bullies. And then there was Sia's um, initial reluctance and refusal to take any accountability and the way she started to abuse people um, in the autistic community who had felt hurt by this film. It was a very, very ugly episode. You mentioned Maddie Ziegler. This is the non-autistic actress who plays an autistic girl in the film. Uh, Sarah, you've also written about this and talk a little bit more about why this is problematic. Yeah, so um, I wrote a review of m music for Slate. And um, I've actually done quite a bit of writing about representations of autism in media. Um, and yeah, I, I guess like when I first saw the trailer, I thought, okay, maybe this will be okay. Um, there's sort of like a lot of myths about autistic people, especially children um, around how we impact our families. Um, specifically, like there are these narratives about us uh, basically being destructive forces in our parents' lives. Mm. Um, there's sort of this myth about uh, that 80% of parents of autistic children get divorced, which is completely untrue. Um, there's a lot of like narratives about uh, how people are driven, like how people, especially mothers, are driven to, to murder-suicide because we're just so awful and terrible to live with. Um, so I, when I first saw it, the trailer, I was like, oh, this is like really colorful and nice and it looks positive. Uh, and then, uh, and then I started watching Sia talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she described it as Rain Man the musical, but with girls, which is how uh, I would describe it if I was making fun of it. But she just seemed like completely sincerely, but she just completely sincerely seemed to think that this was this was a good thing. Um, Rain Man came out in 1988, and Roger it was either Siskel or Ebert, I forget which one, but they started their review of Rain Man with, uh, "Is it possible to have a relationship with an autistic person? Is it possible to have a relationship with a cat?" Like, so like, there's just this very, like, dehumanizing thing in Rain Man and in music where the autistic character isn't really a person. They're a plot device for the development of the neurotypical character, the sibling character's uh, story arc. And it's, yeah, it's just really frustrating because we're people and we have lives and ideas and feelings and... I had sort of hoped that we'd moved beyond Rain Man at this point. Uh, it was 32 years ago. I, I yeah, it was, it was a little shocking that Sia seems to have not picked up any of the progress that we've had since then. You you could replace Charlie, music with an untrained puppy, and it wouldn't change 
anything about this film. That's how little of a person with any of her own agency she actually is. What do we know about the research that was done? How did Sia describe the way that she came about writing and, and directing this film, Charlie? From, from what I understand, and she said several conflicting things in several different outlets, um, she was inspired by an autistic person she knew. I've seen conflicting accounts about whether this person was a little boy or an older man, and that she wrote the part, um, music's part, to be like to be like her friend and specifically coached um, Maddie Ziegler to behave like her friend. But that, that in itself is inherently problematic because she was, um, she was writing an external view of what autism is, not an internal one. Um, there's a lot of, um, I think Roger Ebert described cinema as being a machine for empathy, and it certainly can be, but in a lot of um, media about disabled people, not just autistic people, empathy is confused with sympathy. We are supposed to go, oh, what a difficult life they have. Look at how difficult their caretakers' lives are. Oh, this poor thing. And then they, and then they leave the cinema and think, I'm glad my life isn't like that. That doesn't help us. That doesn't teach people how to understand the way that we see the world and how we experience it. It doesn't tell people how they can make our life, how they can make our lives easier and um, wh what, we what we actually go through. So um, music uh, is another of these very external perspectives on what autism is and it doesn't have any nuance whatsoever. There was another big issue in this film, and that was a character um, applying a prone restraint on, uh, again, the character that was autistic. Uh, Sarah, again, in your piece for Slate, uh, there was so much outcry about this. Prone restraints have killed people and disproportionately used on people of color. This part of the film has now been removed? Uh, no, it has not. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little frustrating. So um, basically, there's this organization called Communication First that represents the interests of non-speaking autistic people, people who maybe type to communicate or who uh, have limited functional speech. Um, and so... Uh, they they previewed the movie after this scene got leaked and there was some controversy about it. And uh, in response, Sia claimed that she was going to take the scenes out or maybe put a disclaimer at the beginning or something. She hasn't done anything. I mean, so like when, when I wrote my review, I was still working off of a review copy and it wasn't um, available for wide release. So I thought maybe she'd you know, maybe like just my review copy didn't have that in it, but uh, several people who have seen it, like on on the actual streaming platforms for the general public, say that nothing was changed, which is very frustrating. 
We spent a lot of time talking about all of the things that are wrong with this movie. Uh, Aaliyah tweeted at us and says, The Netflix series Atypical was eye-opening for me, a powerful family drama that gave me a glimpse of the struggles young people with autism and their families face. Sarah, is Atypical a better model out there for when we're talking about uh, people with disabilities? Not even a little bit. I've actually written about Atypical, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I've, I wrote about Atypical uh, back when I had a blog. Um, that was the first season. I actually did recaps of every episode. Uh, and then I wrote a review of season two for the New York Times. Uh, yeah, it's... The main character in Atypical is a shambling pile of autism symptoms. He doesn't just have, like, one autism autistic trait he has all of them and he performs all of them for comedic timing like it, it's just yeah I, I think atypical is just an embarrassingly bad show and it really frustrates me that people think that it's a positive portrayal because like firstly like they didn't even have any like they, they don't have any autistic people in the series until the second season really there's like one actor who has sort of a bit part and then you have a bunch of actors who have bit parts. So like, we're not the people telling our own stories here. They didn't have any autistic writers for the first season. They brought in a consultant in the second season. Um, but like he wasn't part of the writing staff. Yeah. And, and most frustrating of all, like it, it really perpetuates a lot of the myths around autism, like, that Sam's parents, that their marriage is falling apart. Um, it's sort of blamed on Sam and like, the main character in ways that I thought were just really counterproductive. He's also like kind of a misogynist. And, mm -hmm. and that's not a symptom of autism. That's like a problem. <laughs> like, I, I think that like a lot of portrayals of white men, especially in popular culture, sort of confuse social difficulties in autism with being a sexist jerk and well, those like are like big bang theory yeah like the big bang theory or like uh <laughs> shoot, what was that movie uh adam had hugh dancy in it um uh yeah it's just a really common trope and it's it's really not true like misogyny is misogyny it's not part of the diagnostic criteria for autism one other thing that I Sarah um, didn't oh, like. Oh, oh uh, Charlie, I'm going to actually have to take a break, uh, but this has been really interesting. I, I don't want to uh, <laughs> break here, but I have to. Uh, Charlie Hancock, you just heard, a student at Oxford and news editor of the University's Independent Student Newspaper. Also with us, Sarah Luderman, a freelance journalist covering disability policy, politics, and culture. We're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking, including uh, more attention on neurodiversity. We'll be right back. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, today we've been talking about autism and the way it's portrayed in the mainstream, including this new movie, Music, uh, by uh, Singer uh, and her debut film, Sia. Uh, my guests are Sarah Luderman, a freelance journalist covering disability policy, politics, and culture, and Charlie Hancock, a student at Oxford studying human sciences, and she's news editor of the Oxford's independent student newspaper there. Uh, Charlie, obviously there's a lot of room for improvement with the way uh, movies and series talk about people with autism. Obviously, uh, having more autistic uh, actors and actresses involved would help. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you want 
neurotypical or non-autistic individuals to understand about what we what is called neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is the concept that there are people with all kinds of different brains and, and, and thus different ways of seeing the world and that they are as valuable as each other's. A, a lot of the times when there's discourse surrounding autistic people, autistic brains are seen as inferior in some ways or in, in cases of, of autistic savants as being so superior in some ways that we might as well be a different species, which is actually very dehumanizing. The, um, neuro so the um, neurodiversity movement, uh, one of the things that we're seeking is for people to understand that there's no such thing as a normal, there's no such thing as a right way of looking at or experiencing the world. We all have different brains and we all have a different way of experiencing the world. Some of us just have more different brains and, and ways of experiencing the world than others. And that we are different, but that we are not less than anybody else. And we are not so different that we can't be empathized with. Sarah, we just have about three minutes to go, but I wanted to hear your perspective on neurodiversity and how neurotypical individuals can learn more about this. Um, I, I think on top of the, the conceptual issue that uh, Charlie's talking about, I think that neurodiversity is also uh, a branch of the disability rights movement. Um, and one of the, and I think that a lot of issues that we sort of think about around autism are less medical issues and more issues of civil rights. Things like access to society, access to employment, access to education. Those things aren't about fixing us. They're about fixing society to accommodate more kinds of people. Um, in terms of what I would want people to know to help support autistic people. I think that uh, a lot of people need to maybe uh, be more tolerant of behavior that is strange but not harmful. Mm. Um, like I, I think that like there's a lot of stuff that autistic people do that really doesn't hurt anybody. And it's just sort of like weird. And I wish that people would be more tolerant of that. Hmm. Uh, Charlie, uh, I referenced your Guardian uh, article that you had written, and you talk about Greta Thunberg, about how she gives you hope. Uh, it's been a year since you've written that article. Have you seen the way people um, think about autism and approach individuals with autism change where you live? I think one way in which I have seen a change is actually in the response to um, Sia's film. I've noticed that as, you're, as you are doing today, a lot of um, news, um, a, a lot of news companies and broadcasters and publishers have been seeking out autistic voices and bringing them forward in order to um, allow us to give our perspectives. I was actually ref um, recommended to this program 
by a New York Times journalist, um, Ashley, who interviewed me for one of her pieces. I think that people are more willing to listen. I think, unfortunately, with the pan currently ongoing pandemic, it's been very difficult for uh, measures to be implemented or for any such measures to be brought to my attention for mm. me to be able to say that there has been practice that there have been practical reasons to give me hope. But I do think the fact well, that Charlie. having this conversation more openly is a good thing. Well, we thank you both, Sarah Luderman and Charlie Hancock. This is where we live. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.